Welcome to the Opera Biz Podcast, uncut and unfiltered, where we hang out with opera professionals and talk about life inside the industry. I'm your host, Daniel Welch. We just dive right in, so thank you very much for taking the time to sit down and my pleasure. do this kind of thing. I was really stoked that uh, you wanted to come on and, and do this because we're now getting into that time where PR and media management for artists across the board is a totally different ballgame than it's ever been. So yeah. having you around to talk about it a little bit was was a big boost for me. I was like, this is gonna be great. So yeah. No, so let's talk a little bit um, about um, your background and how you got into this this specifically. So Unison Media, mm-hmm. you started 2015. Yep. And what what started? What prompted that? Um, I spent about 10 years in the record industry before I started Unison. I was at uh, EMI, which then became Warner. Um, and I had essentially, I, I started the week the Tower Records closed and the record business went completely <laughs> into freefall. Uh, and basically, I saw over the, over the course of my, my time in the industry, I saw all of these large institutions that were essentially the pillars of the classical music industry, both financially and in terms of influence and sort of the, the I guess, the, the promotional and structural and financial cycle of, of the industry, how it worked in the US, um, just start to fracture and fragment and crumble in places. And uh, they're all still there, the sort of management record labels media and you know the promotional structure around uh, the artists and marketing structure around the artists but it's it's incredibly fragmented and by the time I left it was incredibly fragmented and incredibly um, difficult to navigate in the sense that what had worked very well for a long time had stopped to work stopped working as well mm-hmm. and so and certainly what I was doing in the record industry was not, it was not incredibly satisfying on its own because nobody bought records anymore. And these, <laughs> the, these major labels, which had such influence and such um, power in terms of what they could do and the artists they could promote and how they could create careers for the artists that they believed in, Essentially lost that, and they they became catalog focused mm-hmm. and you know, old recording focused, and that to me, while it still works, and they have they've developed a new business model around streaming, it was less interesting for me. I was more interested in the artists themselves and the creators, and trying to essentially find a new way forward to help artists to build their career and mm-hmm. to gain exposure and to gain a larger audience for their art and uh, so that was that was the the main reason for why I, I went to them and said listen I want to start my own business can you restructure around me as a consultant doing what I do for you on the promotion side um, which they blessedly agreed to and uh, <laughs> they became one of my first clients um, but but yeah, that was that was really the idea, and I I just I saw a lot of young artists getting really, frankly, just screwed over by the system. Yeah. And um, 
Were you in classical music when you were working for them? Or yeah, okay. I was in classical. We did some crossover. We did some some less classical stuff, but by like probably eighty five to ninety percent classical. Okay, um, and which you know is kind of what I fell into. I never played classical music. My mother was an opera singer. Um, I fell in love with Maria Callas when I was young. Just across the board, loved her and. Uh, and then in college, I started listening to a lot more classical music. I took a lot of courses. I always played in rock bands, but um, I just really liked the music, and I thought that it uh, it, it made me feel and think and experience things that um, I think were just very important to my development as a as a human, as yeah. a person, and a good person in the world. So I think that's still why I work in classical music. Yeah. Um, it's not the only genre I love, but I think it's a genre that puts a lot of beauty into the world, and I think the world needs that mm -hmm. very much now. When you started out um, in 2015, was it just you? Did you start with a team? Um, kind of... Yeah, it was basically just me. I had one person <laughs> sort of helping out here and there, and yeah, uh, but really, really just me at yeah. the start. And how many, how many people do you have right now that you represent? That we represent um, in an ongoing capacity, it's I think around 18. We just, we've brought on a couple people. So I think it's 18 or 19 now. Yeah. Cool. So we, yeah, it's, it's a lot. And we do, in addition to sort of ongoing PR work, we do, I do a lot of consulting for people who uh, just aren't ready for full-time PR, frankly, are not going to benefit from, right. from full-time retainer publicity. We do some campaigns where it makes sense, where we can. It's They're very time-consuming and labor-intensive. Um, but then we also we build a ton of websites. That's something we kind of do separately. It's just an area where I saw artists getting ripped off. And so we do quite a lot of that. And then we do our two concert series as well. So yeah, so yeah keep busy. So let's talk a little bit about, I mean, you, you kind of alluded to the fact that not everybody needs a, a full-time PR staff on retainer and yeah. you know we're kind of it, it, it depends where you are professionally where you're going professionally where you've been what kind of rep you already have um, what kind of stuff do you are you offering music because you guys do you have instrumentalists you've got conductors you've got singers you, you're all over the place institutions which yeah. is which is awesome um, because we're, we're seeing that that works for soloists across the board as well as groups um, and like you said, in institutions, it's yeah. A lot of what's left behind is the social media know-how or the the media management know-how, and that's kind of where you guys come in. So, like, what do you guys yeah. offer? What's a, what's a PR what's a PR team doing right now for? Let's say, I mean, most of my people's stuff is opera, so let's yeah. you know, a conductor or um, a singer. Uh, I mean, to me, there there are a lot of different aspects of PR. I mean, at the, at the core of it, PR is your public-facing persona, how people interact with, the public interacts with you, mm -hmm. or, and the story that is told about you to them and that they hopefully then tell to other people. And that's sort of the, the basic, the most basic aspect of it. But, you know, one of the one of the problems uh, of today is that that fragmented way in which people interact with you. And back in the day, but you know, the pre-internet days, like basically it was through 
your publicist. The right. photos they would give them, the assets they would give them, the and then the stories that they would read that were placed by that publicist. And, so, and then MySpace came along. And then MySpace came along and Tom screwed it all up. Damn you, Tom. <laughs> you handsome son of a bitch. Um, yeah, then, so now with, with social media, with internet, like, there are so many ways for people to interact with your public-facing brand. And so having, um, and brand's a, brand's a dumb word, but we don't have a better one yet for right. it. So this, basically, that, that encompasses your, all of the aspects of your public-facing persona. And people can come to you through a video on YouTube. They can come through a, you know, a photo someone shares on social media on Facebook or Instagram, or they can come through your website or an article that somebody writes about you or a podcast. So there are so many different ways. And having that, having as much alignment as possible um, so that when somebody sees you in one place and then another place, it doesn't feel like a Jekyll and a Hyde or a schizophrenic person. Like they're just like, oh, yeah, it's the same person. Cool, I get it. And this, you know, there's a, a feeling of a continuum. That is incredibly important. So that's kind of the high level to to kind of get back to your question: what a publicist can do for, say, an opera singer. Um, it's controlling all of that. It's you know, what are the what are the assets that we're focusing on promoting right now in terms of what are the photos we want to share with people? What are the videos that we want to share? If they're not good enough, who are the photographers that we use? We manage all the photo shoots for our artists, all the you know video shoots that we create. Um, we and then dealing with all of the other people whose job it is to tell an artist story. The managers, you know, what are they using to pitch for uh, you know to for opera companies to take somebody on? What's the story that they're telling? Mm -hmm. Is it good? Is it the same as what the publicist is telling? is uh, what are the PR departments of each opera house or, or any of the uh, presenting venues where they perform if they're on tour. If one of them is using a 25-year-old photo and the other is using a photo, you know, the contemporary photos, then like an, an older bio or an outs, you know, outdated press quotes or whatever, like those are gonna look very different. Mm -hmm. And so consolidating and making that consistent um, and then going to them and saying, hey, who are you going to pitch? Like, what, what outlets do you have that you're going to reach out to? And if they seem like they're not going to do it, doing it, pitching those outlets. If you say, listen, I actually have a great contact with the TV station here that you might not have known about, pitching them. So making sure that each of those performances is maximized, the exposure, the potential um, storytelling that can be done around it. Ditto on social media. Can, could we coordinate with all their social media departments and say, you know, listen, could we do like a Facebook Live video and an interview a performance? Could we do an Instagram takeover? Like, you know, here's some video that we can, we have that we own that you can share or cut up on your channels. Like all of those things for every single performance. Um, and then obviously there are sort of longer lead, broader uh, media placements like in the industry outlets like Opera News and stuff like that. Um, there are longer lead mainstream outlets like you know pitching for a big new york times feature or a cbs sunday morning or those kinds of things that take years uh of sort of cultivation of the relationship and the profile and you know continuing to pitch even if the the writer says uh i'm not interested now but eh, maybe three or four or five times down the line they say yes um so 
all of that kind of stuff, the management of the social media of the artists, we manage all of our, you know, almost all of our artists' social media or consult with the ones who want to run their own or have somebody like Lucas who has their own. Um, but making sure, again, that like all of the assets and the storytelling is aligned with what's being put out to the public on social media and how that community is being cultivated, that you know, we're creating this echo chamber where if we get a, a media placement, that should go up on the website, that should go out on social media so that it doesn't just, it has a larger life than simply the reach of that outlet. Yeah. Um, and so trying to kind of, again, maximize at every turn um, what story we're telling and how we're telling it and creating a kind of ecosystem of yeah. promotion. I do, you know, my job right now is about 75% photography. Mm -hmm. It used to be about 90% photography and uh, a little bit of, you know, doing some marketing with singers and that kind of stuff. And over the last, I would say, three years, it's pushed so much more. And now, I, you know, my sweet spot is that, that group of people that need the consultant but mm -hmm. don't, don't have the, basically the funding yeah. or the time to... to um, to gig enough to have the funding to need a full-time crew. And so yeah. it's funny what you talk about with the, the interaction with the public. Um, there's actually a quote on my website right now. It says that branding is 25% image and 75% is dealing with the public through that image. Yeah. And um, I always use the term cross-platform congruent branding, which is yeah. it's, that, it's that concept where if we look at you here, we look at you here, we look at you here, we're looking at the same person, not different versions of the person, not a version that's 10 years old versus what's now. And, yeah. um, it's often hard to get into people's heads that that's necessary. Yeah. That it, it keeps, as a brand, it keeps you fresh in people's minds. Yeah. Every time they see it, they can tie it back to something they already know as opposed to trying to figure out, wait, who exactly are you? Did I see you perform at this thing over here? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's nice to see that that's, something you guys really, really focus on. I like that a lot. I think that's really key, especially for classical musicians who don't often think of themselves as a brand or a business, or yeah. they put so much time into their preparation of their art form. Yeah. Um, like I, I did a you know, podcast with um, Sam Henke recently, and, mm -hmm. and she, she mentioned, she's like, I'm not supposed to be a PR specialist. I'm not yeah. supposed to be a social media manager. I, I'm an opera singer, and there are other people who are good at that, so I have other people who are good at that do what I'm maybe not awesome at. And yeah. I was like, that's exactly it. That's spot on. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think... Um, I do think it's important to understand for an artist, and some artists like you know, Sam gets it. I mean... She understands what that is, so she can hire people who are good at it to do it for her. But um, a lot, I mean, there's a lot of artists where we do, I'll do like one consulting session where I'll basically just be like, this is what this actually is. If you're going to hire somebody, if you're going to pay somebody, you need to know what they're going to do for you and how to know if they're doing it well or not. Because, I mean, one of the problems that I see every, you know, every, at least a couple times a week with the people who come to us is they have put a lot of money into somebody who's done the job poorly. And it, it goes from, the results range from damaging to 
nothing. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's part of that sometimes is they just hire somebody who's not good at the job. But other times it's because they didn't know how to set them up to succeed. Right. And so part of it is just that. And, you know, I've, I turn down five or 10 people a week, but just because they don't have enough set up for me to do great publicity for them. Yeah. It doesn't matter. They could pay me 10 times, you know, whatever they want to pay me. And it doesn't matter. Like if you don't have enough gigs or you don't have publicizable gigs, like no publicist can just manufacture those results. Right. So and that's kind of when it falls on the performer too. If you want any kind of content out there, then do what you can do with yeah. that investment. Just yeah, there's nothing for you to do. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. And there are a lot of people team. who will take people's money and right. do nothing. But uh, yeah, that's having been on the other side and hired a lot of publicists when I was at in the record industry. I'm you know part of part of the founding principles of my company are to just never do that. Like right. never take somebody's money unless we have like a result that we can give them and sort of being transparent across the board on that because I do not wish to perpetuate misconduct. I like that a lot. I've um, seen a lot of PR teams that do the exact opposite. <laughs> like you said, they'll take the money and they're happy to, t they're happy to stay in business sit, and yeah. then do nothing at all or yeah. do a, a really poor job. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, I, I, to me, that accountability is extremely important. And I, because I did a lot of marketing before I did publicity, um, I, you know, we, we track all of the website analytics, the social media analytics, like very sort of granular analytics. Um, and, and then we track all of the media placements we get that we secure that come in organically, et cetera. And, you know, we, we're very clear with our clients, like, hey, this is what's happened. This is what we've done for you. These are the results of that in terms of like, oh, this one actually got a ton of website traffic. That one was a great industry hit and it sort of went to tastemakers but didn't actually have nearly as much reach as this one. And so that, that's sort of, this is how this works and this is what we're doing for you. And if I can't come every six months and say, here are our results, it's awesome because we did work for you and we worked hard and we're good at our job. If I can't say that, then I need to be accountable and I need to say, we did our job, but something didn't work here. And yeah. we need to figure out what that is um, so that you're getting the results you need to get. And that's the nice thing about, I mean, for any of us, those of us who have dealt with online branding for the last 10 years, um, watching analytics get to the point that they're at now. Yeah. Um, I mean, I remember way back in the day just having like stat counter on a web page. Mm. Um, <laughs> You know, free service, really basic analytics, but what we can find out now is almost, is almost scary. Yeah, it's terrifying, but it's extraordinary. <laughs> right, exactly. But that's an aspect that, like, I love the fact that you bring that to your client's attention. Oh, yeah. Because there are so many people that don't realize that you can track not just, you know, who's looking at stuff, but where they are, when it is. Where they go, how where they, they go, stay, How yeah. they got there. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's extraordinary. And, um... and, it's, and it's trackable data that, like you said, you can give a report. Yeah. And say, this is how you can tell I'm doing my job. Yeah. And it's not just a follower number. It's so much more than that. Yeah. And I mean, I seek also to, to inform just across the board, uh, both our clients and also just people in the industry. Because, I mean, one thing, one of the problems 
with the rise of analytics is the rise of sort of vanity metrics and people who are like, you know, I've got 75,000 Twitter followers. Um, I'm a social media influencer. I'm, you know, I'm pretty big deal. And then you go and you look and I've had, I, I, I've had like important people, like very powerful people in the industry be like, this guy's an influencer. And I'm like, okay, sit down, just sit the hell down. <laughs> and let me just show you something. We go through their Twitter account. I'm like, look at the first tweet. Like, how many likes do they have? And they're like, well, that's one, one of those little hearts. And I'm like, what's the second tweet? They're like, mm, they got two for that one. I'm like, it doesn't matter how many followers you have. It matters the impact you create to those followers. And like, you know, I could go to some click farm in Indonesia and have 60,000 followers by, you know, 6 p.m. Yeah. Doesn't matter. If I can't actually cause a ripple with the content I put out, then it doesn't matter. That's why I try and tell people that that's the whole yeah. reason that the the algorithm is is skewed the way it is now. I mean, they up, everybody updates their algorithm once a week, once every yeah, 10 yeah. days. But the fact that like Instagram's sweet spot is, you know, you'll get bumped back to the top of a feed if you have a comment that is five words and three emojis. Right. Like that to them says this is beyond people who are auto commenting mm-hmm. and goes beyond purchased followers. Yeah. Like if the engagement isn't organic and now we have these parameters that sort of tell us what's organic and what's not, then we yeah. don't care what you're doing. Yeah. Like we don't and care that, how many know, followers it comes down to. Exactly. And, and so, I mean, yeah, it's one of those things where I see, and it, I see a lot of PR and social media specialists and so on who screw people over again with those kinds of um, vanity metrics and sort of saying the smoke and mirrors of saying like, listen, I know how to do this because I did this when they didn't have anything to do with that. Yeah. The success of that. And so, you know, again, that kind of transparency because a lot of people are bewildered by how this stuff works and are, are, are confused about the way forward for promotion. And we all are because, you know, we make it up as we go along. Like, right. I mean, I like I've done well because I throw a hell of a lot of spaghetti against a hell of a lot of walls. And I just see what sticks. And what stuck three years ago when I was first starting Unison is very different from what sticks now. And we pivot and we adapt. And like my company is growing, but I will never grow to the point where we can't be nimble because until the entire edifice has resettled in a new sort of way and a new sort of clearly defined cycle of promotion and growth and financing of that promotion and growth. Like, we just need to keep creating until we, frankly, we make that structure. Right. And right now we're in, you know, we're in no man's land. And so that's, I go any direction that leads somewhere. Yeah. Frankly, at this point. And, but being able to track those analytics and track those results, um, both, both quantitative and felt, um, that's kind of all we can do right now. And it's, you know, start to coalesce it into a larger strategy and a, a replicable tactical approach. Do you guys focus on any specific social medias over others? Platforms. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Instagram is the only one with growth and uh, really satisfying engagement right now. Um, Facebook still matters because it's where everybody is. It's the most robust platform in terms of different types of content. Um, and a lot of people have invested a lot of time and energy in growing a following there. And even if 
the algorithm cut at the beginning of last year just deaded most of the reach of professional pages. Yeah. Um, it's still important to be there to have that echo chamber and to nurture that community. And I was going to say, it still helps the SEO. Yeah, it still matters. Yeah, it still matters across the board to just be, you know, be present and be building a community. But Instagram is, while it's much more limited in terms of the content and how you can actually market things and promote um, from a branding standpoint, it's, it has by far the, the best reach and the highest growth numbers. And then Twitter is... It's Twitter. <laughs> Twitter. Twitter seems great on the coast. Works amazingly for some people. And then, and they, right, and then other people just cannot grab if you, a hold, if, doesn't latch on. If you're either super controversial, uh, <laughs> a huge asshole, or great at like pithy witticisms in conversation. Right. If you're great at that, then you kill it in Twitter because you just enter a conversation say something amazing and then drop the mic. And, and then you're then okay with having a conversation swirls around all you. the way throughout the day. Yeah, I you mean, just got to spend a lot of time on it. Well, because they say, I was reading the other day that the sweet spot for Twitter right now is between 16 and 20 posts a day. Oh, yeah. yeah something like that. I mean, gotta, like, you have to just pour yourself into yeah, it. Yeah, that's, a, that's so, a lot of dedication. And it's, and it's like, to me, it's just a cesspool of... The, the worst of humanity. Uh, Christ, I thought that was Snapchat. That was <laughs> Snapchat. Snapchat. <laughs> like ninety nine point nine percent of the world is like, no idea how this thing works. Right. No idea. I, you know, I can make the puppy face thing, and that's all I get. I'm pretty sure um, that most of the people that work at Snapchat aren't entirely sure. Yeah. How Snapchat works. No, no. no it seems. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's. It's it's cool. It's fun, but it's like as a marketing platform, it's useless because unless you're, unless you're like an influencer, like. Right. Re- but, but I even mean, then, even then, it's it's tricky and it's you know very indirect. But uh, I mean, the problem with classical music, in anything in that in any any place where it it intersects with technology, is that tech is about scale and it's about building a huge consumer base and mm. user base. And classical music is regardless of what people will say classical music will always be a niche yeah. it should be a it should be a bigger niche and it should reach a larger audience and it should be more integrated with the mainstream culture but it will always be a niche yeah. and so the two it's like i see so many streaming com- companies that have tried and continue to try to create a classical only dedicated music streaming service and i don't know that any of them will work even though some of the new ones like uh you know, Adagio and Primephonic are smart and they're, they're trying interesting things, but like it's a niche and why am I going to pay for a great classical music streaming service that only has classical when I can also have pay the same amount or less and have classical music plus everything else. So yeah. you kind of, it's very difficult to, to compete and achieve enough there. And so for social media, like unless you're really trying to be a massive, a classical music influencer, of which there are a very small handful, um, it's really more about niche marketing, which is building your community around yourself and activating them and growing the, the people, everybody who joins your community. It's not about numbers, it's about quality mm. um, and people who will support your career and, and evangelize for you. Yeah. 
So. So what are some of the, uh, do you have any campaigns going on for anybody right now that you're actively working on? Or? Yeah, we always have a gajillion. Um, or what, what's, a, what's a good example of uh, a campaign that you've run for a singer that was had a specifically goal-oriented goal that you know you had something that you um, were gunning for specifically? I mean, God, yeah. We, I mean, we had, for instance, like uh, Janae Bridges. We had her, her uh, Carnegie Hall recital debut. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there was a lot of, um, that was mainly media focus because we wanted to m- make a big splash out of what are often kind of blips on the radar, these like Wild Hall recital, which is the smallest recital hall of Carnegie and not usually a big media moment. And, but we kind of pulled out all the stops. We did a lot of, of cold pitching around a lot of different, um, different angles for her. Um, sort of beyond the music, uh, her interests, her story as a basketball player uh, who switched to opera after a coach made her choose. It's a very dramatic and great story. Um, you know, her, her identity as an African-American woman and the, a lot of the music on the recital reflected that as well as the sort of her interest in European music and the sort of juxtaposition and, and some of the through lines. Um, so, so yeah, our focus was really to get a lot of opera media to come and cover this and, and continue to establish her as a rising tide in opera, but also get some very left of center, sort of more mainstream. And so, you know, we, we got a, a big BuzzFeed interview, which rarely happens. We got a big Associated Press, which is sort of a national newswire hit. Um, and then we got Opera News and a lot of the sort of all the opera media to cover it as well. So that's sort of strategically like we pick these flashpoint moments and we decided to sort of double down on them um and then you know working with some of the uh on social media some of the accounts that have larger followings or more engaged followings where she'll do like a takeover for them and sort of gaining getting doing the sort of takeover strategic approach that gets them new followers, but that also gets them exposure to those followers, even if they don't then follow her, um, then allows her to do some storytelling to boot. So that's sort of, but yeah, I mean, it's, each campaign is really quite different. And, um, you know, like Lucas, he was singing in uh, North Carolina, Lucas Meacham. And uh, so we we made just a, like a full court media press to, um, to, the North Carolina media and said, this is, you know, this is your guy coming, coming, coming back home. to you, yeah. coming home. And, um, you know, Jenny, who works with me on, on our singers, we, we just carpet bombed North Carolina press. And, you know, I've amassed quite a few contacts. She cold pitched quite a few and we just kind of spread it from there. We got him a massive TV segment, like carpet bombed radio, carpet bombed the print media and online and just you know, made what, again, what could have been a lovely homecoming concert into, like, a statewide media, like, blitzkrieg. And so that idea of just not letting something happen in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. And then all of, obviously, all of those things are then fed back into social media on his website so that they have a life beyond that one broadcast. That's one of those things. One of the things that I teach when I teach... Um necessary media so like i was when i was in minnesota i worked with a resident artist there mm-hmm. um and uh you know i teach at a yap over the summer and when, when we do our classes on necessary media i go through the normal stuff we, we have but 
that that top of the 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 pinnacle of the best the best media to have is that kind of commercial national media coverage kind of right. thing because it ends up becoming in a sense referred to as an evergreen post yeah not only is it out there for the public but other places will grab it repost it and then you can repost it you can repost it in pieces yeah. it gets so much longevity yeah um not to mention it has a lot more clout than me backstage with my cell phone right you know right and it's but the two i mean it's again it's there's a lot of sort of the um publicity companies on the sort of you know mid-range like 10-year and you know the very much much older pr companies where they sort of treat social media as uh, a side circus or as sort of like yeah. a, they pay lip service to it and say yeah we should we should post on the the twittergram about that um and like to me that is that's fundamentally missing the core nature of what pr is now today which yeah. is that and it's um these these media placements yeah some of them have massive impact when they drop but you can't just rely on that and you need to then take them and make them content pieces of content themselves and ongoing and if you have a new york times review that comes and goes and you don't then put that on your website and put that pull out quote in your bio and put it on your socials and reference it every time you pitch something else then you're doing half the work of PR at best and there's a lot of stuff where there's a lot of outlets that don't have a ton of reach but that produce for instance good video content mm-hmm. and I'll I'll have an artist go and go on them even though it takes a lot of time and work and it's you know that content on its own is not hugely impactful because then I can take that content and leverage it to other outlets and say here's a great video and we have we control what they perform and how this sort of the conditions of it and it becomes then video content that's validated mm-hmm. and because it has the stamp of approval of a a media outlet on it so it's not just you know us shooting something so right that kind of it's this this dance of finding validators and leveraging them to get further validation and leveraging that to get higher validation and access to larger outlets um and then circulating all of that back into this echo chamber that is now it's now the way that an artist rises mm-hmm. and rises in terms of how they're perceived the the state the scale of their reach and the impact of their reach and the again the the energy of the story that's told about them yeah and whether or not people are like this is somebody you need to see or like this person has arrived yeah and that that comes of people being told that and feeling that mm-hmm. and then that is what eventually props them to say it right so i'm glad you brought up that's how it's created you you grabbed uh Janae's campaign that for after I met her she was kind of on my radar mm-hmm. and then over this last season has is is constantly on my feeds yeah and is is everywhere so props to you guys because you guys are doing That's a, a damn good job there <laughs> um no because her I coverage mean, is to be is, fair she's but incredible as well. So. Right, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, that's when <laughs> we've got the goods. That's uh, a, a combination too. made in heaven. Yeah. Um, but no, but she's she's been really visible, yeah. highly visible, um, particularly you know since 
like December. Yeah. Um, you know, it just it's peaked up, and I see her all over the place. Yeah, and that's that's awesome. That's that's you guys working smart, yeah. working wisely, and uh, you know, and telling her story in an applicable way that people can grab onto it and yeah. do that kind of thing. Yeah, which is important. So what's your staff like now? I mean, it's not just you anymore. Three full-time. No, we've got three full-time. Jenny, like I said, who works with our singers. Um, we have uh, Jenny Clauder, Jacob Slattery, who we just, just started recently with us in the new year from Bernstein, who works more with our instrumentalists, composers, and uh, some of our institutions. And then uh, Jack Giglio, who's uh, fresh out of college and sort of helps, helps around make everything He's, he's the glue that holds it all together and mm-hmm. the oil that makes the machine run smoothly. Um, and so, yeah, we all, we all kind of do a little bit of everything, though. Um, and, uh, and, and, yeah, that includes the PR and social media for our ongoing clients, as well as the building of websites the, um, and the producing so and presenting. You have a, a pool of website designers that you go to, or do you have people in-house that do them, or combination of both, uh, same with photographers? Mostly more, for that, it's more we do it in-house, and we've sort of built a custom platform that we're you know, getting ready to launch where we kind of completely build on our own. Nice. Um, yeah, which is much, much better, much more interesting to me. Um, yeah, and then photographers, I mean, we, I do photography, but really more for like shows when they don't have budget to hire a photographer, frankly, or like yeah, behind-the-scenes yeah. social stuff. But yeah, and we have sort of variety of photographers we work with. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah. So, but that, and then we have a small army of freelancers that help out on varying in varying capacities and uh, you know designers, etc. Uh, and of course the cat. Of course the cat. Actually, well the cat. Sadly, sweet peepers. Uh, my girlfriend became allergic to the cat, so the cat is now with my brother. Uh, Peepers has moved on. Peepers has moved on. Yeah. <laughs> she quit. We we're she treating quit. her good enough. She quit. She got a better offer. She got a better offer. Yeah, yeah. She's she actually poached a few of our clients, and um, but I wish her the best. No hard feelings. No, that's good. Yeah. That's good. You know, great, great. It was a great work. Amical split. You know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, kind of, where do you see the um, where do you see the future of this corner of the industry going? You know, is everything? It's, there's so much experimentation. Yeah. Um, but, you know, is there writing on the wall for any specific direction that you can see? I mean, it'll continue to coalesce. Um, and the relationship between uh, owned and earned media will continue to blur um, in the sense that, you know, there are both black hat and white hat approaches to this at the moment where you have, you know, people who, um, you have presenters who have blogs uh, that they interview artists who they present for. And some of those blogs sometimes have more reach than some of the local blogs that review their, their pieces. But you have that, you have, um, you have less scrupulous people who like create and do sort of pay to play type arrangements, Mm -hmm. which, um, you know, not that I have issues with people getting their money, but, uh, sometimes it blurs the ethical lines of, of sort of editorial. Um, so, but then you have people who just create great marketing platforms, um, and then you know again leverage that to to get access to to bigger artists or bigger institutions, and you know then start to charge for ads. So I think the lines will continue to blur before they they 
solidify, mm-hmm. frankly. Um, and the traditional media will still has a lot of figuring out to do how they enter online. The, the big radio stations, the big print outlets, the big you know TV video outlets, how they hybridize into something that lives online and has the same impact and soul online that it had in whatever its its pre-internet form was. And some won't last, some will die out, but others will make that jump and figure it out. Um, but there's it's still sort of tectonic shift at the moment, a time of tectonic shift. And um, that's why, again, like I, I, I am very focused on staying nimble because I don't want to build a house on something that's still massively, massively on a fault line. Absolutely. Um, so, so we'll see. But I mean, I, I constantly look towards where the mainstream is going and where the larger industry, because that's, you know, that's where the best practices are. The best practices are not in classical music. Mm-hmm. Um, and so seeing how that's, that media landscape is developing and trying to get sort of understanding and, and ideas from that. Yeah, that we can then apply to our strange, crazy corner of the world. (laughs) A lot of the listeners for this show are still in academia, Mm -hmm. in the conservatory world and that kind of thing. Do you have any advice for the people who aren't even quite ready to get a consultant on board Mm -hmm. yet? Um, What are your thoughts for those, that group? Um, Think about what differentiates you, what, what you want to do with your art. Um, and it can't just be, I want to sing really, really well. Like you can't be anymore because that's not how you build a successful career. If you want to build a career and people will say, oh, there, you know, there's this person or that person. And like, there are some people in industry who just, just get lucky. They just hit oil. They have talent and, you know, extraordinary talent and they just you know, hit the up arrow in Mario Kart and they just, boom, they go. But that is a 0.001%. Right. And you can't gamble your career on those kinds of odds. So, you know, the way forward now is to have a story and to have something that you do that nobody else does or nobody else can sort of be said to do the way you do it. And... And so thinking about that, and it's, I know that's, that's torturously vague, uh, but it's the nature of, like, of PR and storytelling. And like a lot of what I, like the value I provide when I do these consulting sessions, people tell me is you know, not, not the practical knowledge of the industry or anything like that. It's simply telling them, hearing their story and then telling it back to them better and mm-hmm. saying like, okay, you're not this, you're, you're that. And that's how you should talk about yourself. That's a much more compelling way to say the same thing that you said to me. And thinking about that and asking people about that and, and reflecting on how you want to take whatever you're doing, what you, as a singer, like how you want to take your voice and actually use it. And um, you cannot do, you can't be a jack of all trades, so to speak, and have... Um, or you can't be perceived as a jack of all trades and have a really, I think, stratospherically successful career because it's too, there's not enough to grab onto 
So mm. you have to think of what are the hooks you can give people. Like, do you focus on edgy new music? Do you just, are you that guy who just sings the, the romantic melodies better than anybody else? Are you, you know, method, Daniel Day-Lewis method actor who just sinks emotionally into the, the, the work and just, you know, sets fire to everything around him? Like, who are you? And who, like, who do you want people to say you are? Mm. And, like, because you need to think of your story in terms of the people who are not you who are going to tell your story. So... It's a little vague and it's a little scattered, but that, to me, obviously focus on being great at what you do on a technical level, but like, what do you want to do with that? Mm -hmm. And how do you want people to talk about it? <clears throat> and think about that and talk to other people about that because talk to the people you trust yeah. about that. I like that, I think that's really good. Anything else you want to uh, cover? Be willing to try things and like, because I think that's another thing where artists would be like, no, no, that's not for me. Or like, I, you know, like, and we are part of this tectonically shifting landscape or sort of seismically shifting landscape is like, there are incredible opportunities that might not initially appear that way. And like some, some crazy composers like, do you want to sing in this, you know, random opera I'm doing? Like 20 years ago, you know, there's like, I'll pay you in, uh, you know, a, a half a bottle of Jack Daniels or something like I don't have any money. But like 20 years ago, no, like you do your career, you, you sort of climb the steps and so on. But some, now, I mean, that that production of some random new work in some random shed could get more coverage than, you know, the Met. And like, you know, we started doing these concerts in a crypt and a catacomb and mainly for shits and giggles because I thought it was an amazing space and we had artists who had programs that fit it and I wanted to kind of peg some PR to it so we were just like, yeah, let's figure this out. And like, you know, we've gotten more coverage than, you know, major performances at Carnegie Hall and the Met and like, I'd never expected that to happen and we just did it because I thought it was cool and we had people who were willing and the media landscape has changed and that they don't just cover people don't just cover or care about the huge institutions anymore. Mm. And like more than ever you can, particularly for singers in these sort of indie opera scene, you can get, build a huge career for yourself before you even touch the stage of the men. Like Anthony Rothkostanz is a great example of that. People like that who, Beth Morrison, which she does sort of building an entire platform from nothing much more quickly and efficiently and sometimes more effectively than the huge institutions. So particularly as a singer, like don't, don't focus purely on the big institutions and the big orchestras or the big halls or the big opera companies, like pursue projects that might not be the money makers or the industry validators, but that either tell your story well or relate to your pa what you're passionate about in the industry and do those as well. I think there's a, a real attractive purity to some of those passion projects. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Which is why if they tell a story dynamically, they can get so much coverage. Yeah, and they can be much more, yeah, they can be much more the integrity and the experimentalness and the, um, the energy can be very, very different. Yeah. And so I like, 
that's one thing I say is obviously try to get to the big places that have the money and that have the sort of cred, but uh, at the same time, yeah, just don't sleep. At the same time, like do, the, like, do these other things as well. Find, find the things that you're passionate about and do them because those projects oftentimes will get you far more exposure and far more um, powerful of a community built around yourself than, than these you know, huge, boring productions that pay, pay mm -hmm. the bills. Um, and sometimes you can then, they will pave the way to doing even larger, more powerful passion projects once your sort of standard career grows. Yeah. So that would be another piece of advice is like do, try things. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking your time. Appreciate My pleasure. It. This is a, a great conversation. I think a lot of, a lot of both experienced and young singers need to hear, mm -hmm. and uh, so I, I really appreciate it. So, yeah. thanks so much, man. My pleasure. For more thank information you. about today's yeah. guest, visit our website at operabizpodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show with two interview episodes and two social media sound bites each month. You can find me directly on Instagram at the Beard and Lens, and the podcast Instagram is at Opera Biz. Thanks for listening to the Opera Biz podcast.